Yeah, team is he can he it sounds pretty good actually. Little yeah, bit of yeah. Digital artifact, but no, I think that's fine. Yeah, cool. Um, thanks for doing the podcast with me. Yeah, no, happy to. When I um, when when I heard you'd had such amazing results with you know cre- treating chronic fatigue and other things with Reishi and Lions Man, I thought you'd be the perfect first guest for um the Forestry Foods podcast. Oh wow! Well, I feel honoured. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what's um, what's your background before you got into all this all this research stuff? Well, look, my my career originally was IT. I had a boutique IT company. Uh, we had perhaps twenty thousand clients. We're based out of Sydney. Um, yep. My specialty was, well, I suppose, problem solving, pattern recognition. Um, but yes. the actual areas that I had my fingers in were the systems administration, software development, network security, systems architecture. Um, essentially, it was, uh, I suppose, the kind of niche where you aren't always able to actually see how things are broken initially. Like you can't actually see running code. So you need to be able to infer um, the state of things by looking at the way that things flow around them. So okay, so you, like, yeah. you, you know the website's broken, but you can't work out why. Yeah, so what you're able to see is is different sort of characteristics, different different um, different ways that things are flowing around a problem. So where things are stopping, starting, you know, pinch points, hotspots, uh, inputs, yes. outputs, feedback loops. And then yep. based on the shape that they create, you can kind of see what's going on inside that. And then you can you can zero in on a problem fairly quickly. Yeah, right. So it's kind of like, I don't know, like the old-fashioned, uh, you know, movies where there's like a crime scene and, you know, they're joining all the dots, putting the pins in the board and sort of joining up the strings and seeing where the hotspot is. Yes. Um, like that without the Hollywood, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I always think about it, um, like we talked about this before, but I always think about it in terms of a chess game, you know? You, see, you, you, you go through, there's a, there's a finite amount of moves and you go through each one of them to ascertain which one's the right move to make. Correct. Yeah, probability matrix. That's pretty much how I look at it. Yeah, cool. So, and you always look for basically the pattern. So you'll see, you know, like there'll be sort of three things that'll be sort of signaling, yeah, look, this looks like it could be positive. And it's like yes. if you can take two steps forward with one of those and it's positive, then you're kind of confirming the previous step behind. So each time you take a new step, uh, yes. if it's wrong, then, yeah, you'll find that, okay, I've hit a dead end. But if I take another step and that one's right, then it keeps solidifying each of the previous steps. And like the longer the chain is of evidence, if you like, then yeah. the more positive you are that you're on the right track. So now in this, this particular uh, scenario, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of steps wow. uh, that required to build this model. And it was painstakingly done um, over, over many months with really wow. close observation. So it was uh, basically what I did is I followed around uh, some people that had chronic fatigue syndrome mm-hmm. and basically spent sort of five to eight hours a day, sometimes more just you know, observing, listening to them, talking to them, asking them questions and basically understanding because there's some interesting little patterns, again, with, you know, the people that are in these conditions, they've, they've run afoul of, you know, normal medicine. That's the first yes. thing. So normal medicine doesn't know how to treat them. Uh, they all seem to have uh, a very high affinity for supplements and they, they all have sensitivities for food, sensitivities for these different, you know, different supplements. And they can tell you very quickly what hurts them, what helps them, you know, what helps them initially and then causes them to, to crash later and have problems. Wow. And so, yeah, it, it was really interesting. So basically it's like, okay, so what did you do today? Oh, I ate this and then this happened later, or I took this supplement and this happened later, or, you know, 
basically just by observing these little things okay what happened you know oh I, I had a pain in my in my side or i had this problem or you know my head feels like it's all hot and prickly and you know this that and the other you, you can kind of start sort of seeing the patterns developing and yeah right this, yeah so it's the same sort of thing as what i was doing in it accepting different systems so same same process same fault finding process so and how just, did how did you go from doing the it stuff to to following around people with chronic fatigue? Well, the funny thing was, <laughs> okay, so on the side, like my, my whole life has been a bit unusual. So long story short, the IT stuff I'd been doing since very, very early, like first computer when I was three, started writing software when I was seven, wow. working after school when I was 11. Yeah. Um, I ended up actually leaving school at 14, went off to college, went off to TAFE, did electronics. Wow. Uh, prior, to, prior to that, I was like top 1% in the state in standardized testing. So it wasn't that yeah. I was, you know, not yes. achieving. It was just I didn't really like school. It was not uh, an environment that I particularly enjoyed yes. very much. Oh, fair enough. So, yeah. So basically went off to that, did electronics. And then after being an electronics engineer for something like eight or nine years, um, during that time, I ended up starting off this other IT business. Yep. Um, which is basically where my, you know, my passion had been. And I was kind of teetering between going back and doing medicine, um, doing law. I had, you know, all sorts of ideas that I might sort of jump in as a mature age student, you know, and potentially go down these other, you know, sort of pathways. Yes. Um, but yeah, look, there were, there were various reasons that I chose uh, to stay with IT and it just felt like it was the right thing to do. Yeah. So that company uh, built that up over, I think it was like 16 years, ended up selling that. Yes. Um, and then basically on the side, I'd been studying, initially I'd had real interest in things like nootropics. Um, yes. That was a big thing back in the 90s, I think. It was, you know, things like DL, you know, phenylalanine and tyrosine. These were like, you know, the smart drugs as they were called back in the 90s. Yes. Uh, yes. So later that developed into a scene, you know, that was called nootropics. Um, yes. I kind of got a little bit uh, internet famous, if you like, back in... It was 2011. I was researching um, some, well, some interesting compounds. It was it was around omega three, um, so fatty acids plus um, a as a nucleoside called uh, uridine, yeah. and um, yes, and choline. And basically, what we're looking at was uh, the phosphatidylcholine pathway. And it was really interesting because uridine had all of these effects where basically you could improve somebody's um, like dopamine homeostasis. So basically it modulated dopamine output at the same time as increasing dopamine receptors. So it had these interesting effects for um, depression. It also had, well, certain types of depression. It's a complex topic. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, all of these other features were basically improved brain density. You know, there were studies where um, they had uh, like animal models where they fed uh, uridine and omega-3s to a pregnant rat. And mm. I thought it was a mouse. I mean, this is going back a while. And then yes. essentially the, the babies, they had brain density that was 270% uh, percent the controls in the study. Wow. So it wasn't like a little bit. It was, it was a significant increase. So wow. you know, there, there were all sorts of really good things to say about it. There were some dangers in there as well. Like there were some, you know, there were some studies that were showing things like um, uh, transcription uh, issues. So DNA um, transcription issues and strand breakage and things like that in certain conditions so like okay you know 
like everything else, there's, you know, risks you, you push down on a leave or something else pops up somewhere else. But yes, yeah. The, and also like with a lot of other studies, things that happen in a Petri dish, you know, don't often work out you know, in real life. Of course. So, and how, yeah. and everything affects everybody differently. But how did you, um, yeah, how did you get internet famous through that? Well, long story short, it was a kind of just a weird situation. So there was this old website and it's still gone going and it was all about life extension. It was called Longevity. Um, And it it was just, you know, like anything else these days we have like Reddit and, you know, various other online forums that are very, very busy. Um, Back in those days, it was all, yeah, I suppose, smaller communities. Yes. And um, yeah, look, long story short this turned into a very long conversation. Um, and then because of that, it got very popular and lots of people who wanted to get in. So they all self-experimented and tried these things and had, you know, yes. interesting results. And then, you know, one person tells another person and, and the whole thing sort of blew up. And before I you know, knew it, you know, there were companies out there that were marketing products based on this using my online handle. Oh, because, wow. <laughs> yeah. Like in the product name, no less. And of course I wasn't, you know, generating any revenue or anything like that out of it. it yes. Was, you know, someone's like, oh, these, you know, these guys are selling a product with your name on it. I'm like, that's great. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and so what, ha- what happened to the end with that? Is it, is it well, something that's still out there? Yeah, it's still it, out there, still popular. Yeah. Um, yeah. bit of parallel development too. There was something we discovered while we were researching that there was, um, yeah. was it Danone or uh, Nutricia? So they, yes. they released a, um, what do they call it? They call it, you know, medical nutrition. So it was a okay. yogurt that was basically based on the same sort of formula. Like they had different, you know, different, uh, levels of certain ingredients in it. In fact, the key ingredients, and I looked at their formulation, I, I was, <laughs> Uh, yeah, didn't didn't agree with the way that they'd actually done it. Like their dosing on certain things was significantly over the top, like yes. would actually cause problems. So anyway, oh, wow. like basically it was it was a situation where I, you know, I, I basically showed these are the doses, this is the range, you know, these are the risks, and you know, hey, if anybody comes along later, you know, this is this is what I know, and you know, best of luck to anybody. So, wow. And so yeah. that, that was your first kind of, that's when you first got involved in research and, and you know, studying different compounds to see how they affected people. Yeah. Well, that was, that was basically an interest at that point. I mean, I've been interested yeah. since probably 90s, but that was kind of budding. And, you know, like at, at that point in time, um, yeah, there, there hadn't really been a huge amount of information. Not like it is now. Like you couldn't just sort of jump on and Google things. You couldn't really look yes. up, um, you know, published, you know, peer-reviewed articles very easily. Um, yes. Oh, and important in all of this too was that I actually had chronic fatigue syndrome back in my teens. Ah, uh, so that's where your interest in chronic fatigue comes from. Well, this is the funny thing. So, look, I didn't even set out to study chronic fatigue. Yeah. Um, with this, with this current scenario, it was more so. In in I'll you know come back to that one, but in in the yeah. stuff that I've been doing since IT. So it, as I was transitioning out of IT and kind of just reaching that point where I thought, you know what, this is this is enough. It's enough IT. I need a new chapter. I need to do something else. Yes. Yep. So um, in that time, I also realized that, you know, 20 odd years roughly of IT and electronics and everything else had done a number on my health. So I was overweight, I didn't, you know, had creaky joints, I was weak, yes. you know, just all these things that I'd never really you know, associated myself with as, as a teenager, at least prior to chronic fatigue syndrome. You know, yes. when I was younger, um, martial arts, gymnastics, ballet, even as a, as a kid, you know, like as a yeah. little one anyway. So yes. I had, you know, flexibility and strength and all this, this stuff, which had just gone and I'd certainly, you know, just turn into an office potato. So sure. nothing, nothing worked. Nothing was, you know, I was just like, wow, yeah. really? Am I that old? Like, I'm not even 40 <laughs> and I feel like I'm 70. This is just, you know, this doesn't work. So for sure. So in the process of getting my, my body back and, you know, suddenly I found myself with all this time. 
So, yes. you know, no longer kind of having to run around and chase a dollar. It was more just, okay, well, you know, where can I best apply myself today? So, and, and, I, and I guess chronic fatigue is quite interesting as well because it's thing that's difficult to measure. No, it's quite subjective in terms of being able to measure whether someone has it or not. Well, this is the funny thing. So basically there haven't been any standardized real biomarkers and things like that. There are certain scales and certain tests and things like that that you can, yes. you, know, you can do and say, oh, look, you know, someone's got orthostatic intolerance, POTS, you know, all these other, okay. you know, common, common issues that people have. But yes. up until recently, there haven't really been biomarkers that really show that somebody's got these issues. I mean, now, you know, there's probably a half a dozen markers that I would point out and say, look, check this, 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 and this, and you'll see very, very quickly um, the state that somebody's in. But of course, yes. the thing with biomarkers, all of this stuff is relative to uh, their activity, to things that they've eaten, you know, and also any drugs, medications, things like that on. Like they, they all get altered by these different inputs. So they all get altered in, in similar ways by the, by the by same outputs, by the same inputs, well, or are different people kind of influenced in different ways? Well, actually, that's the thing. So it depends on their serology. So it depends on what um, viruses, for example, or what other causes they might have for chronic fatigue. So yeah, okay. we found uh, a, like a number of different things. Like it all basically came back to mitochondrial dysfunction. That was the key thing. And there were all these different influences that alter the way that you know the, the mitochondria behave. Um, okay. the, the big research that I was doing was on um, the herpes virus family. So that was, okay. that was basically the, the first, well, three papers. Yes. Um, and then a, a basically in the process of building that model, uh, the model has been robust enough that you can just drop in another pathogen, like another, you know, another virus, another input. And basically yes. it shows you how that's going to play out, how it connects into the model. Wow. So, yeah, it's been really, really cool. So Wow. So, so, so that's the relationship. So chronic fatigue and herpes, they're, they're very different, but they could both, you could, you can demonstrate, you know, both of them using the same model and what's going to work for them because using well, the same model. This is the funny thing. So they're, they're not actually um, that different. So basically if you look at, so herpes, herpes, there's, well, there's nine, if you include the, the A and the B. So there are nine uh, different families of herpes viruses in humans. So oh, wow. we've got the ones that everyone thinks about, like herpes simplex virus one and two, you know, that's like genital lesions, mouth lesions, things like yes. that. Yes. Uh, then we've got varicella, which is chickenpox. Later in life, you have shingles potentially. Um, then you've got uh, the fourth one, which is Epstein-Barr virus. You've then got cytomegavirus, which is the fifth. Then we've got HHV6A, 6B. They don't really have names. HHV7, yeah. likewise. And then KSVH, which is usually associated with various cancers as well. Well, and they're so, all they're all considered herpes viruses. Yes, they're all herpes yeah, viruses. Yeah, right. And then there yeah, are right. variants as well. We've got tick-borne variants like MHV sixty-eight and seventy-two, which come from you know uh, animal experiments and things like that. And they yes. even show up, for example, as Epstein-Barr virus if you actually do serology tests. So wow. it's ubiquitous. The funny thing is, if you look at herpes virus, it's actually been on the planet more than seven million years, and it's, oh it's zoonotic. So it spreads between different, you know, different species. It happily wow. jumps, <laughs> jumps around. And the, uh, the metabolic effects are actually really, really interesting. So completely separate to the, um, you know, the, the different add-on sort of features that it, like the, each of these different species, well, different viruses have. Um, mm. They all have different ways of taking over an organism. But then they largely have identical um, alterations to the metabolism. So basically the hijacker cell... Um, and then depending on the, the energy level in the cell, they have either what we call a latent state um, yes. or a lytic state. And the lytic behavior is very different. The lytic behavior 
basically involves a high energy state where they basically go out and then try to replicate really quickly and start attacking, if you like, start seeding other tissues. Um, the latent state, on the other hand, depending on the virus, it, it looks yes. different. Like they all behave a little bit differently, but they alter the metabolism in the same way. And what okay. I um, linked together in the, in the papers was basically, if you look at um, the behavior, it was really coming down to, like apart from the replication behavior, um, mm. the metabolic alterations came down to really just, um, well, largely one one enzyme alteration, but then, you know, there were a couple other ones in there as well. We talked about GLUD1, GLUD2, uh, and this other one called GDH, or GLUD, uh, sorry, same one there, uh, glutamate dehydrogenase. And then the other one was GLS, which is uh, gluminase, which is to do with um, uh, glutamine metabolism, which is connected directly to glutamate, and which is where glutamate dehydrogenase is. So it's literally right next door to each other if you were to look at them on, a, on like a pathway map. Okay. Um, and then what was really, really interesting is if you were to look at these protein expression profiles, um, mm. you'll see that they share the same characteristics with something like 90% of the cancers out there and also with senescent cells. So the wow. very cells that age us, <laughs> the yes. very cells that age us and all these cancers and all these herpes virus infected cells all display the same characteristics. And I thought that was really interesting yeah. uh, because... You know, the whole concept of what aging is at a, at a cellular level is, is, you know, quite fascinating in itself. Like yes. You've already got cells that, you know, like if you, if you were to sort of treat a cell, if you like, as a network of, you know, sort of biological, you know, hardware, I suppose. Like, say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use some like IT metaphors here, like something like a server farm. Imagine every single cell is a node and every yes. single cell talks to each other. Um, in the same tissues, they all, they distribute resources, they distribute loads, they, they basically share everything and they act as one very cohesively. Wow. wow. Okay. So where this all sort of um, then ties in, I suppose, well, I'll, I'll come back to the, I suppose, some of that, but the, the immune side yeah. is when you have um, a bunch of cells that are in a tissue that are infected, mm. they signal, so cell to cell communication, they signal the other cells in the tissue to behave like them. Wow. Okay. So and, that, take... and, that, and that's the same with herpes and with cancer and, and with chronic fatigue as well. It's that same kind of thing that's happening. Well, it's, it's the same thing. So you have tissues that are acting cohesively in an abnormal way. Yes. Now, cancer, I'll come back to it. Like there, there are specific things that happen. Like the difference is I've, I've kind of like a lot of this stuff is early work. So, you, you know, you need to take some of these things, I say, with a grain of salt. Like we're still sure. got a clinical trial coming up. Um, there's yes. still a lot of work that needs to be done at this point. But yep. in, in a very rough sort of way, um, if you like one, one of my uh, one of my sort of thoughts, if you like, at the moment, the difference between a standard herpes virus and I, I use that word to mean any of these nine families in this state. Okay. Yep. So any any herpes virus infected cell, the difference between it and a cancerous herpes virus infected cell simply comes down to a mutation. So there's certain damage, if you like, that's being done. And I'll come back to how that works. But there's okay. certain damage that's being done to the DNA in those infected cells. And that comes from oxidative stress or what we call mm -hmm. uh, ROS. Yes. And basically when there is too much ROS, uh, it's almost like the engine heat, if you like, inside the mitochondria. So the mitochondria is like they're, they're engines inside the cell. They generate energy for the cell to operate. Now, okay. they generate heat. We think of that as the oxidative stress. And that's all to do with the electron train trans uh, chain transport and certain things that are going on with... Um, uh, things like uh, hydrogen peroxide and, you know, all, all these things that basically are potentially really, really, really damaging. 
Um, okay. But they are also useful and they are there as a byproduct. So we have things like, you know, we have vitamin C, we have vitamin uh, E, and we have glutathione, which basically, uh, and things like alpha-lipoic acid, things that basically are there to scavenge uh, up that ROS, that oxidative stress, and try and basically bring everything back to a nice, cool state. So it's the yeah, things right. like coolant is probably a good way to look at it. In yeah, a, in an okay. Yes. So. If, if someone's basically running that engine at redline the whole time, yes, uh, as you'd imagine, there's a lot of heat generated. Now, you know, yeah. in, a, in a really, really well-engineered environment, if you're able to keep getting that, you know, that heat away and if you're able to keep the thing fueled and, you know, everything else is in perfect working order, then you might be able to sustain that redline for a while. You know, yeah. it might be within the engineering tolerances. However, yes. if you aren't able to keep it cool, then things start breaking down. Now, that damage that's being done, if you like, um, can also, as I say, include damage to the DNA itself. Now, yeah, the right. cells themselves are equipped to actually manage a certain level of that damage. So we have, uh, we have these things, uh, this process, if you like, called histone acetylation. So it's basically where the cell takes uh, the DNA, it loosens it so that it can make changes. And then after it's made those changes, it deacetylates those histones. And so basically puts it all back together. Now, as uh, the name implies, acetylation, it requires a, uh, a, a, well, a metabolite called acetyl-CoA. Now, acetyl-CoA is basically responsible for energy getting into the mitochondria. It's responsible for the acetylation of all these other metabolites, like things like acetyl-L-carnitine, uh, acetylcholine, um, acet and acetyl-serotonin is one I bring up a lot. Um, yes. And without, uh, without acetyl-CoA, you can't oxidize fatty acids. This is one of the reasons, for example, that uh, we have problems with obesity, with uh, other problems around diabetes and things like that. This is all in the model as well. Because essentially, the issues that we have with acetyl-CoA, uh, it, it basically breaks all of these pathways. So coming back to the cancer <laughs> uh, example that I was just giving before. Yes. So if we can't repair the DNA damage, imagine basically that, so the cell knows that the DNA is damaged. The cell can't yeah. repair that damage. Now, under normal circumstances, if there are certain issues with the DNA and various other sort of, uh, I suppose, the expression of that DNA, then there is a master controller inside that cell that's supposed to say, oh, hang on, we've got a big problem here. I need to be replaced. So much like when the telomeres get short, uh, and yes. that's like programmed cell death, uh, the same thing happens. So the, the cell is supposed to say, okay, I can't repair this. I need to die. I need to be replaced. So it signals yeah. apoptosis and the cell is just discarded and a new one's put in, in place. Yes. Now, in the infected cells, the, the regulator, which is what we call nuclear factor kappa beta, uh, nuclear factor kappa beta is unable to perform its job and actually signal for apoptosis. So basically the cell is more or less immortalized, if you like. It cannot die. So wow. all of these DNA changes, this damage that it can't yes. repair, is then kept, and then and, potentially and those and those damaged cells are all the mean uh, talking to other cells as well and telling them to kind of act in the same way. Correct. And so that's now, how it's spreading. Well, that's that's part of it. But then imagine, okay, imagine what happens if you suddenly got a cell that sustains damage to yes. uh, code that's required for it to basically be able to hear cell-to-cell -cell communications from cells around yes. it, neighboring cells. And this yep. is really important because basically if, if you've got a cell that can now talk to the other cells and say, hey, I need these resources. Can you share this with me? But yes. it can't hear the neighboring cells and saying, hey, stop growing into me. Stop bumping. You know, stop bumping. You're hurting me. Yeah. So they're, they're basically 
uh, zombies, if you like. They're programmed by the virus to replicate. So it's all yes. about the proliferation. Grow, 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 replicate. Grow, 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 replicate. And yes. if they can't be a good neighbor and hear the neighbors saying, stop growing, all they're yeah. going to do is what they're programmed to do. They're not evil. They don't, you know, it's not like they want yeah. to do anything apart from grow. They're programmed to grow and they don't know yeah. any better. It's, so yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's their software. Happens. That's it. That's just code. And that's so the how thing. Do... If you, if you yeah, look sorry. at IT and then yeah. you, if you look back at biology, it's all just code. You look at DNA, it's just code. Isn't that interesting? It's all just ones and zeros. Yeah, that's, that's essentially it. Although you're looking at it, amino acids, base pairs, basically, when it comes to DNA. Yes. So, so this is this is the thing. Like the skill set from IT translates really, really nicely into biology. Once you actually understand, you know, the different systems, it's just pathways and systems. Yes. So there's yeah, it's it's just a transference of an existing skill. So yeah, so getting back to the mitochondrial fun, um, function, um, how does how does Reishi play into that? How does Reishi normalize that? Well, that's actually really, really interesting. So Reishi, Reishi actually does a lot of things. So apart from patching a particular pathway, so one of the big things that I found when I was writing the second paper yeah. um, was there was a pathway that starts at C-terminal binding protein. It ends up basically dot, 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 um, down to nuclear factor kappa beta. And that gets dysregulated by, um, for example, Epstein-Barr virus, EBV. Um, and the Reishi basically normalizes that pathway, which then allows the cell to actually signal for apoptosis. And so it's not just the mitochondrial patch, which is part yes. of it. It's the yes. fact that it also fixes the apoptosis pathway as well. And that was where it signals that it needs to be discarded? Was that Correct. what that was? That's okay. exactly right. So basically the, the Reishi allows the infected cells to signal for death. But the thing is, yes. it's not complete. Even though the cell is now able to signal for death, yes. if there are still jobs running, like protein synthesis tasks, it yes. actually has, uh, it, like, there's another bit of logic there that says, I may not die and shall not die until my work is complete. So basically wow. why mTOR is running, if you like, that's probably a way to describe this, then the cell is still not going to die. So you have to basically pull the energy down. We have to, we have to bring mTOR down and allow wow. the signaling to work before the cell will actually die. Now, this gets really, really cool because once the cell, this is this has been the big problem with all of the herpes virus, with HIV and basically anything that has this latent state. So imagine yeah. your immune system is like, uh, again, back to IT terms, you've got like a, say, like a network sentry. So we've got a network of all of these cells. Now, yes. the, the immune system is kind of like a, a little watchdog that sits there on the network and looks for things that are going wrong, but it can't see inside the cells, really. So it, yeah, it okay. can't actually tell that there's a problem in the cell. It's relying on the cell to put its hand up and say, hey, I've got a problem, boss, kill me. Yes. But of course, if the cell's not, you know, not doing that, the immune system isn't really able to see it and isn't able to do anything about it. And so these cells are just sitting there merrily carrying away, replicating and taking over that tissue and eventually taking over the organism. Wow. So when, uh, when basically Rishi and the, you know, the, the mTOR alterations are normalizing all of these pathways, suddenly yes. you have a cell that wants to die and can die. And then the immune system comes along and says, ah, I see, we've got a problem here. So this is where it got really interesting. So we've got, so the triterpenes, which are in Reishi, and then yes. the beta-glucans. Now we were using a, a, like a combination of different beta-glucans. There are multiple types. So uh, Reishi's got beta-glucans. There, um, there are other fungi like lion's mane. Um, you've got various other you know, popular, <laughs> popular fungi, even yes. the humble oat. So oats, uh, yeah. rye, barley, all of these things that actually have um, different beta-glucans and different levels of beta-glucans. Would rice now, have it as well? 
Yes. Now, rice, yes, actually, there's some very interesting uh, products. I think, the, again, what's becoming my favorite um, supplement company, which is yeah. Life Extension. Normally, I'm not a, yes. generally a fan of supplements and supplement companies. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> generally, yeah, historically, that's, that's, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of uh, dodgy products out there and things that haven't been labeled properly. And like this, this, this sure. been, yeah, unregulated pharmaceuticals is probably the way you look at it. But yes. uh, there are some vendors that do actually, you know, care about the quality of their product. Yeah. Um, that is one. So, yeah, there's, uh, you know, so they, they've got a product, um, NK uh, Activator, which is based on a, fermented uh, rice bran product, which I believe is going to be largely polysaccharides and, and uh, ultimately beta-glucans. So it's, yes. we're, we're finding, yeah, the, the immune-stimulating functions of these beta-glucans is actually really amazing. So using that model, talking about the network sentry, um, yes. essentially what we're doing is all of these network sentries, all of these things that are running around the blood and looking for work, looking for something to kill, yeah. um, suddenly we're, we're able to really stimulate the production of those network sentries. So things like the natural killer cells, the lymphocytes, uh, all of these things that are that are um, normally running around looking looking for trouble, basically. Yes. Um, and one of the you know the the big problems in these diseases is not just that the cells aren't signaling for death; it's also that the immune system is not capable of keeping up with the load of all of these things that need to get taken care of. So beta glucans are amazing; like they they do an incredible job of stimulating an immune response. So if you if you create the work for them by allowing the you know the latent cells to signal for death, and then yes. basically up the numbers of these these little workers running around you know on a killing spree, um, then you get a very very robust immune response. You're able to clear the decks of all these infected cells. Wow! So you kind of have you have the uh, what was it the trip the triptonines they they're uh, going triterpenes yeah tri triterpene triterpenes triterpenes so, think, yeah, so they're so going to so they're they're gonna they're gonna help the cell to be able to signal that they need to be destroyed, and then the beta glucans are actually going to help the immune system to be destroyed to, to be yeah. able to destroy it. Correct. Wow. Well, the, the triterpenes do a lot of extra things, so it's not just the apoptosis. Like if you have a look in uh, reishi, for example, you've got ganoderic yes. acids, uh, yes. and there's there's a whole different pathway in their metabolism. Everything from ganoderic acid A through I think T is the, okay. the end end of that pathway. And they yep. all have these different features. And then, like, depending on which part of the, uh, the reishi uh, mushroom, you get yes. different contents. And this, this has actually been one of the really big challenges uh, in some of the research and some of, you know, the various people that have been um, self-experimenting with this yes. is the different reishi products. Now, USP in, in America, they actually did, uh, they did a study and they found that 74% of reishi products were fake. Oh Simple wow! Like didn't what didn't have any reishi in them? Yeah, or or more the point. Let's see. They either didn't have um, yeah. like the the level of like the triterpenes, or they were different fungi, or they were. Oh wow! Or they they yeah. misrepresented how much beta glucans were in there, or something, and things like that. So, and, and it wasn't just like the um the the companies themselves. You know, there were suggestions from some of the vendors. Like um, I was I was talking with uh, Paul from Nootropics Depot, and he expressed. Uh, a real distaste for some of mm. the shenanigans that were seen. So some of the the labs that were doing the testing for the reishi um, mm. were basically just stamping a number on it. Like they weren't even really testing it. Wow. Um, and it's like, oh, well, I think it's got, you know, maybe, you know, like 15% of the, the beta glucans and it comes back yes. with the lab results saying 15%. 
It's yes. like, well, <laughs> they'd even <laughs> sent them through um, something else altogether and told them it was Lion's Mane, and it came back stamped as Lion's Mane. Oh, wow. As a test. <laughs> I was that's, like, wow. that's, concer- that's pretty concerning. So <laughs> yeah, what does so- uh, what does the ganodermic acid, what, what does that do? Well, they do different things. So this is actually really, really interesting thing. If you have a look yeah. at some of these, these triterpenes, and if you yeah. have a look at the structure of these things, they yeah. actually have the same steroidal background, uh, backbone, if you like, of um, human uh, steroids. So if we're looking yes. at uh, testosterone and uh, dihydrogen testosterone, DHT, and various mm-hmm. other things like that, you'll see the same basic setup there. And then there's little bolt-ons depending on, you know, what, what this thing is actually supposed to be signaling. Um, mm. what, what's really, really interesting is when you look at nuclear receptors, like people think of things like the androgen receptor. So the receptor that uh, the testosterone binds to, for example, think, oh, well, it's testosterone it binds to, and it's just this, this one trick pony. Um, yes. it doesn't work like that. Like essentially you've got all these different binding domains in each receptor and depending on how the ligand, the ligand in this case is the thing that actually binds to the receptor. So it could be testosterone, it could be something else. Um, the shape of that ligand and the way it actually binds to uh, these ligand binding domains in the receptor, it turns on and turns off different transcription factors inside the cell. So it'll wow. alter the expression of different enzymes, different proteins inside the cell. So in essence, what this shows us is these nuclear receptors are essentially a programming port. Yeah, so wow. that's what they do. If you want to alter the, con- like the, the, the running behavior of a cell, you can do it by programming it through a nuclear receptor. So wow. the ganoderic acids, when you're looking at those, are, in a sense, programs, that instructions that are being sent to the cell to alter their behavior. And it just happens to be that they can alter the behavior of the cell in a way that counteracts the behavior of the viruses. Wow. And I guess because, you know, it's from what, from what I understand of, of what you're saying is because Reishi is kind of helping the cell to be able to signal that it needs to be destroyed. And then it's also it, boosting the immune system to be able to destroy those cells. That's why it, you could paint a, quite a, we might, we might be able to paint such a, a broad stroke for so many different diseases and illnesses because it's all those different things that are all kind of screwing with the cell and how it, how it, its ability to be able to signal that needs to be destroyed. So therefore, that's why Reishi kind of looks is looking really promising for chronic fatigue, herpes, and cancer. These things that seem very different. Well, this is the thing. So look, the, the only problem is, is look when you're looking at these labels like chronic fatigue syndrome and cancer and yeah. things like that. Yes. you've got to understand that they're more or less an end state. So basically, it's it's when for whatever reason a particular cell or an organism, a, a set of you know a set of pathways has reached a state where you're now classifying and calling it a particular disease or a syndrome mm. or whatever it's going to be. Yeah. So as in are, it's got ba- it's got bad enough that that it's become very obvious that there's something going wrong. That's right. Where, so it's, whereas it's a, it, yeah. Yeah, it's a false state. So what we'll find is, for example, that you know the, the ganoderic acids and the things that are in Rishi might be really good for a very large set of influences that can reach yes. that state. It's not the only um, input, if you like, to, you know, to the model or to basically the cells or the organism that can create that state. So the, this, this might, for example, get rid of maybe, let's say, you know, 75%, just a round number, of all of the influences that can create these problems. It could be more, it could be less. Um, yes. There are still, you know, there's still work to be done with the other influences and the other viruses and the other, you know, the other problems. Yes. Um, and, you know, research is ongoing. Like I'm currently exploring um, enteroviruses, particularly Coxsackie at the moment. Okay. So that's, that's, that's something that's actually been 
uh, a focus for the last couple of weeks. Um, just because, look, the, the herpes virus research has gone so well um, that I'm able to kind of just let that continue. But um, yes. I'm now looking at other inputs, other other factors, basically, that can create these, you know, these same set of circumstances. So, and wow. then find solutions. So Wow. And, and so do you think, do those, do those illnesses work in a similar way to, well, you know, to the herpes virus? Very, very similar. So, for example, like this is really fresh. There's last, last sort of 24 hours um, that we've really been poking around this. But yes. so, for example, um, Coxsackie B4, um, that yeah. alters a different enzyme. Again, right next door. So the, the leg or the input to the mitochondria there at alpha-ketoglutarate um, from glutamate. So mm. it alters uh, an enzyme um, which converts uh, glutamate to GABA. So uh, GAD. So basically it alters uh, in, in much the same way. So it can trigger the same state, the same, um, I suppose, the, the reflex, the, the metabolic changes um, that is also capable by altering glutamate to hydrogenase. So it does it by altering the one next door, but still yes. has the same cascade of downstream effects, you know, just in a slightly wow. different way. And there's nothing to stop someone from being infected with many of these different viruses. So someone yes. could have, for example, four of the herpes virus. I think the, the statistics are something like 100% of the population has at least one or two of these nine wow. herpes virus. And, it's and I suppose like, you wouldn't necessarily have symptoms either. Well, really interesting. So it's, it's again, what do we call symptoms? So again, yeah. if, you, if you start thinking, and this is a bit fun and you start actually really projecting out where this goes, if the symptoms are, for example, that you can't produce collagen, Yes. You know, if, if you start looking at, you know, organs that are certain, you know, no longer able to maintain their basic tissues, yeah. then you start actually realizing that perhaps aging itself is literally the effect of what happens when you have a really um, advanced uh, state, if you like, a, a really advanced end product of a latent infection that has successfully invaded an organ to the point where the tissue is no longer able to be maintained. Wow. And, and that's what you start thinking. Well, maybe, maybe this is actually what aging is, for sure. And it's not necessarily because we've taken we've just taken on face value that it's just something that happens. You know, that's it's right. the same that happens to everybody. And yeah, that's really now, interesting. Man, if you start looking, there's there are species on the planet, for example, that live for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and they have different defenses against the herpes virus family. So they've all got their own different versions for different species. Um, Greenland shark, for example, is one lives for like 400 years. And wow. we've actually been studying certain products that come from the Greenland shark as a way to kill off cancers and um, herpes virus related um, yeah, wow. disease. So it's, it's, yeah, it's very, very interesting. Wow. So, so you've done a couple of studies already. Well, and we've what... done... Yeah. At the moment, it's it's more the so the work that I've been doing uh, have been review articles. So my co-author okay. um, partner, she she's actually you know the the brains and the beauty, if you like. She's the neuroimmunologist um, with uh, masters in biochem. So she's she's been sort of you know helping keeping me on the straight and narrow, answering questions, and generally yes. assisting uh, throughout the process in every way that she can. Um, yep. But yeah, also. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, she's she's actually away at the moment with, funnily enough, uh, and sadly enough, a cancer-related issue within the family. So, oh, wow. um, it's it's a bit difficult. Yes, but, of course. But, um, yeah, no, sorry. In fact, I've just jumped a cog there for a second. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so, 
Yeah, so so you so you've so what you've done so far has been review, and now you're looking to do a clinical trial, clinical doing trial. clinical trials. That's exactly with actual, right. With people, yeah, yeah. So we've done three reviews. Um, yeah. And basically, what I've done is just literally taken hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of data points and connected them together in a way that's actually showed the purpose and the intent. So basically, yes. showing, hey, you know what? If you take these six different disciplines and you connect them all together, this is what it actually looks like. And then once you see that, you can then model how the behavior works when you change variables, which is why we can just bolt on another another pathogen and say, oh, okay, well, if I alter this enzyme, this is going to affect the whole, ah, oh, look at that, there's the whole cascade, it gets triggered again. So, yeah, wow. it's it's at that point where we've seen some really amazing early results. Um, so case reports, basically, which I still have to publish, which has just mm. been tricky because time has been probably my biggest weakness at the moment. Um, yes. But, yeah, basically, the the early results we've seen in people has been nothing short of astonishing. You know, people that have been basically uh, in various stages of different diseases and suddenly they get their life back. Wow. You know, and they've got to go through, look, it, it's not a pretty situation either. Like the, the process, what's really, really interesting is mm. the whole concept of what our immune system does and how it works and, and the way that we associate being sick with the actual infection rather than being sick with the immune response. So you, you could be mm. absolutely infested with viruses and display no symptoms, and yet you might say, "Oh, I'm healthy. I never get sick." Yes. And the, you know, the reality is, is that your immune system is just not performing its job, and that's why you're not sick because it's not actually attacking anything. If that's so like, interesting. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a paradox, and it really, you know, it, it pushes people because if you um if you take okay herpes herpes simplex one or two, you get a lesion on your genitals, you get a lesion on your lips. Mm. And you go, oh, that was the virus. Well, no. What actually happened is the virus or the, those infected cells, so remember we talked about the latent cells aren't visible, but when they go lytic, when they start going to that high-energy replication state, whoops, have I lost you? Yeah, sorry. I don't know what happened then. But, okay, you were saying, so, so yeah, you get, a, you get a lesion. Oh, a lesion. So, yeah, the, the immune response. So, basically, if you get a lesion, this is what happens when the immune system has detected these infected cells. So the cells have gone lytic and they're, they're now in a state where they're trying to actively replicate and take over the host. And at that point, the sentries, if you like, on the network in the blood, they can see this activity and they can then detect that that cell's infected, not because it's signaling for death, but they can see that the activity that's coming out of that cell, the proteins that are being produced and expressed are abnormal. And at that point, it goes in and kills it. And of course, oh, when that wow. cell is gone, we now have a lesion. But then we associate that lesion with the virus rather than the actual immune response to the virus. So the, so the, lesion, is, the lesion is the immune response pushing it out, pushing well, out the, the, the virus. Yeah, it's eliminating the cell and then replacing it. But of course, this causes pain. This causes inflammation. And so, of course, all of the, the, you know, the painful aspects of the immune response, we associate with the virus and we blame the virus. Yes. So, of course, when someone gets sick and they have, you know, like the flu or whatever, oh, wow, that virus, you know, that that cold, oh, that really knocked me around. Yes. Well, no, your immune system did a really good job of fighting something off. And the immune system doesn't care about your feelings. It doesn't care about your mental health. It doesn't care about your pain (laughs) threshold. Its job is to make sure that you survive and it doesn't care how much you suffer in the process. So it's, it's like with a fever, no, when you get a fever, that's your body killing off the virus. It's not the virus causing the fever. That's your immune response to correct. the, to the virus. 
and the funny thing is on an evolutionary sort of aspect to this too, you know, like yes. life goes on, life will persist. And it's really interesting. So when we think, we talk about things like cytokine storms, things like we've yes. seen in um, coronavirus infections with people that it, so we have like our, our innate immune system, our native yes. immune system, and then we have our adaptive immune system. So the okay. native immune system is basically like all of things that are just going to go kill, kill, kill. They don't know what it is. They just kill. And then we have yes. the adaptive immune system that basically has a signature. So basically a cell expresses an antigen, the immune system learns to, you know, that signature and then goes in and basically deals with that specific problem. Now, when, when basically the adaptive immune system is unable to kick in and do its job, the body continues killing with the native immune system. And if it's unable to get rid of the threat, it continues attacking with the native immune system up until the point where the organism dies. Now, wow. some would say that that's a failure of the immune system. But then if you take a step back and say, well, hang on a minute, if the built-in immune system is unable to kill this thing, you know, whether it's, you know, the adaptive immune system, whatever, but if the organism mm. is unable to kill off the pathogen, chances are that the pathogen is so bad that that organism, unfortunately, needs, you know, needs to pass on so that basically it doesn't get spread to other organisms. What it kind of did is self-destruct. So yep. it does it to, to protect the species. Correct. Isn't that interesting? Makes so a lot, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it makes a whole lot. It's not nice, but that's nature. Yes. Nature is, is quite cool sometimes. Well, it doesn't so, care about the individual. You know, no. it's not interested in the individual. It's interested in, you know, the life, life as a whole. Yeah. So what's, um, what's the relationship with fasting and, now, very, and the benefits? Very, very interesting. Yeah. So basically, look, fasting and autophagy has, has been sort of well known to help, you know, promote basically turnover of old cells, you know, to get rid of senescent cells. Um, one of the things that I looked at was, you know, basically what happens when we fast and yes. basically why it takes, you know, potentially a long time to get rid of certain cells or to, you know, to go through the process. And yes. it all came down to, well, when we fast, we're not putting energy into the body anymore. You know, we're not consuming anything that's going to be providing these cells with nutrients like metabolites, energy, no carbohydrates, no fats. So basically yes. the only way that the cell is able to sustain um, life is to mm. get that, well, the interesting thing is, okay, we've got, typically, if you were to look at a cell and you say, okay, we've got multiple energy sources. So we've got glucose that's in the blood. Now mm. that can come from food that we've eaten. Um, that can come from a process called gluconeogenesis. So basically the body um, catabolizes. That's when we basically shrink existing cells, liberate energy out of them in the form of glucose, which then can be fed throughout the system to maintain other cells. So it's basically resource sharing, if you like, from one cell to another. So we convert yes. our protein, our muscle cells, for example, we'll convert some, of, uh, convert some of that muscle back into glucose to feed energy to keep the other cells alive. Obviously okay. not ideal if you're trying to maintain muscle or anything else. Yes. But that's the process. So when we're fasting, when we're asleep, you know, gluconeogenesis can be a source of energy. However, mm. that glucose can actually be stored, uh, locked up in a thing called glycogen, which gets bound with water um, and basically is able to store some of that carbohydrate energy, that glucose, as glycogen for future use. Okay. Now... So that's, that's kind of like an internal reservoir of energy, if you like, in the cell. We then have, um, we then have our stored body fat. So basically that fat, if you like, is kind of like the external power source for the cell. So we can, we can, tell, um, we can tell adipose tissue, we can tell fat cells to liberate energy, which can then be fed to the cells by what we call fatty acid oxidation. Okay. So that's, that's another energy source. And then... 
the other big one, which everyone had always looked at from a point of view of, oh, isn't this really interesting? Cancer cells, they survive by using glutamine as an energy source. But the thing that was really interesting is if you actually look at all the amino acids that are in our body, glutamine is actually about 60% of all the total sum of all the amino acids in our body. So all the other amino acids put together only make up 40% of the total wow. amino acid profile. And so okay. it became really obvious that glutamine essentially was just energy. It was, it was like glycogen. It was recycled energy. And it comes out, interestingly enough, the, the port, if you like, the, the pathway in the mitochondria where um, nitrogen, where, where we were talking about before with glutamate and potentially glutamine, yes. glutamine is essentially yet another stored energy that can be used in times where um, glucose is not available, when fatty acid oxidation is not available, and various other times when basically the, the mitochondria might want energy from multiple sources because it has demanding jobs. So, okay. you know, there's, so you know, the, the classical thinking is, oh, well, you know, energy comes, you know, from glucose, comes from glycogen, comes from fatty acid oxidation, and then it goes through potentially pyruvate or, and then through acetyl-CoA, and then it starts entering the mitochondrial reactions. Um, the reality is, is that the, the mitochondrial reactions, they can be fed from any of the different points. You can feed it. Like, it's, it doesn't matter where you feed it in, it'll go around. There are different um, metabolism outcomes depending on where you feed it. Like, for example, if you feed it from anywhere um, that's not from pyruvate and like um, through acetyl-CoA and citrate, then you chances are you're going to be generating more lactate. And this is really useful because lactate is also recycled energy um, that comes out, if you like, out of the, the, um, the mitochondrial reactions. Now, okay. in, a, in a fasting situation, what we're trying to do is deprive the cells of all the different routes of energy into the mitochondria. So this is where but it won't, really won't, it just won't it just take it from fat cells then? Well, this is it. So what gets really interesting though is if you take a normal cell and you take yeah. an infected cell yes. and you put them side by side, they've got different behavior. So the infected cell is programmed no matter what to keep building, keep replicating, keep producing these viral proteins. They don't have like a quiescent state. They don't go quiet. They don't just twiddle their thumbs and go, yeah, you know what? Resources are a bit short right now. I kind of just need to rein it in a little bit and, and you know, I'll get back to my building tasks later. The viral cells don't do that. They just build, 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 build. Like, yeah. like a common, common garden mint or a weed. They will build yes. until resources aren't available and then they will die. And that's yes. exactly what happens. So if we cut off all of the other energy sources to the mitochondria, and we yeah. did this in the fast by basically, again, we were talking about um, that one enzyme that the, the herpes virus family elevates, which is glutamate dehydrogenase. Yes. If we take that enzyme and we knock it right down, which funnily enough, we can do with an extract from green tea. Um, wow. So EGCG, simple, good old green tea in a very yes. high dose, will completely knock down that enzyme. Or in a lower dose, it will reduce that enzyme. We can normalize it. Um, and if we're, if we're in the middle of trying to fast, we're trying to basically starve the, the cells and starve the mitochondria of energy, then mm. what we can do is remove, artificially remove the primary energy source um, that would be available during that fast. So we can cut off GDH or glutamate dehydrogenase, cut off any energy that might be stored there uh, as glutamine. And basically what that means is we've now removed, if you like, um, the primary energy source to keep fueling all of the cells. So then, remember we talked before about acetylation, and we talked about acetyl-CoA. Yes. So in the, in the infected cells, 
the infected cells, because they're building all the time, the process basically depletes acetyl COA. So when acetyl COA is now depleted in the cells that are fasting, mm. there is no more energy available from any of the other inputs. We've cut off the energy from the glutamine. Yep. So basically the, the cells that are infected are now completely out of energy and the cells that are uninfected, they've gone quiescent. So they're sitting there twiddling thumbs waiting for you know, things to restart. Meanwhile, the infected cells have just basically run out of energy and died. Wow. Okay. So it's kind of like the the fasting mixed with the with the green tea helps to kind of slow down the the multiplication of these infected cells at the point where then you hit them with the the ratio in the lion's mane and it kind of kills off whatever's left. Well, kind of. It's more. It's more basically. They're two separate processes. So, the the fasting is a way that you can kill off all of these infected cells without yeah. having a functioning immune system. So essentially. We're using purely the metabolic traits of the infected cells against them. We're hanging them, if you like, with their own noose. And wow. this is really useful because if somebody's immunocompromised, you know, someone who's perhaps gone through chemotherapy or something, you know, unpleasant like that, or just yes. basically has had their immune system compromised by these infections, because these infections hijack the immune system, they alter the immune system and basically leave um, the host in a compromised state anyway. Yes. So somebody whose immune system isn't up to the task of, you know, at that time, actively defending against uh, these infected cells in the right manner. Like if you can cut off the energy supply and you do it in the right way, mm. these infected cells basically kill themselves and we don't require, um, you know, the immune system to do it. So wow. we fast, you use the green tea extract to, to knock down that enzyme kill off as many cells as we can comfortably do because you're going to be losing probably half a kilo of body fat each day is what we've seen. Um, wow. So that's, that's sustainable, you know, for some people for, you know, days or we had one person recently um, that went down this, this uh, path for a uh, irritable bowel disorder. And actually yes. there's, there's photos on, um, there's photos on his journey. He's blogged about it um, on, on the website that we're running. And yes. in nine days of fasting with the green tea extract, the, just the, the amazing results that he's had. It's, 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 yeah, it's mind boggling. If you, if you saw that, you wouldn't believe that that was nine days worth of, worth of, you know, remediation. Well, that it's was, not very long, is it? No. Nine days to, to, to completely change your, change your life with, you know, something that with some serious illness that's inflicting your life. But then, but then, so you, so he's done the fasting and then mm-hmm. while, and then he's moved people, on to the reishi. So it's so, two. It's a two-step thing. Well, I mean, you could do either or, realistically. Yeah. If you, you know, depending on your situation. But um, yeah, the the advantage of doing the fast first is that you are one. You're rebuilding your immune system. So yes. in the process of basically catabolizing cells, we're also basically rebuilding um, those immune cells as well. So people yep. who might have infected, you know, immune system are able to basically regenerate. Um, a cleaner, you know, working robust immune system. Now, this is going to vary from person to person. You know, there's different situations there. But, yeah, mm. essentially, there have been um, case reports of people with lupus, with, you know, multiple sclerosis, with all these other, quote-unquote, autoimmune diseases mm. where they've suddenly been in um, remission after performing extended fasts. Wow. So... We, we use it as a, as a useful tool. So you could fast. And it's, what's really interesting is if you, know, if, you, if you look at you know, religious texts, if you look at customs there, and if you look at, for example, you've got um, Judaism's got Yom Kippur, 
Um, yes. You've got Ramadan with uh, Islam, and then yeah, in in Christianity, we also have, I guess, similar. Uh, similar things as well, but I just don't know how well observed they are. <laughs> so, well, exactly, and and you know when these religions were created, you know there would have been natural kind of fasting happening as well, you know, because people didn't always have access to food and yeah. Correct, and there would have been yeah cyclical things with the seasons. It might have made yes. sense at certain times of year not to eat. And I think the yes. Egyptians they used to do forty or fifty day fasts. Wow, um, from what I was reading, so it was it was really really interesting, and it's. It it seems to be like a, almost something that has been kept going or observed, but not really understood or you know the purpose of. Even yes. even things like with Ramadan, for example, my understanding, and I could be wrong, and no doubt someone will correct me, but mm. from what I'd read, um, the interpretation of the way that their month long fast used to be was very different. So it went from actually being a full fast to just intermittent fasting or one meal a day, where they can they can they can't drink water during the day. Um, yes they can't eat during the day and then there is a small period a window where they can replenish um their nutrients so they can eat and they can drink and then they go Mm. through the same process again for a month Mm. um from what i've been reading it was suggested um that originally it was a month of actual fasting well no doubt that would have been perhaps water during the night but not during the day and then somehow that's that's you know transferred later but I, i don't know i need to do you know, perhaps a whole lot more reading on that because I'm not the most you know religious scholar, as it were. <laughs> well, you, you're busy enough with with other things, but so, I, but, yeah, but so, so, so you would um so you often when you when you talk about the fasting and so you often say you often talk to people about doing the fasting in conjunction with taking the mushrooms. Well, as separate stages, you can't do them really at the same time. I, I'm still looking into what would happen um, if you're taking reishi while fasting. Yes. Uh, at the moment, I'm not. I'm, look, I'm, I'm not sure. Basically, we need to research it more. At the moment, yeah, I'm comfortable okay. um, with the the green tea extract. Basically, you know, working as as um, predicted. But the, yes. the concern that I have is so the reishi, for example, it disables the viral replication tasks. Yeah. So my my fear is essentially if you were to take reishi while performing the task, uh, mm. the fast, then you're losing the specific metabolic differences between the cells that basically allow you to selectively kill those infected cells. So you, you won't necessarily be able to hang them by their own noose. Yeah. So, okay. yeah, but you could, you could certainly fast first um, yes. or even later at another stage when, you know, the Rishi's, you know, metabolized out of the system yes. um, and, and just run these two things parallel, oh, like, sorry, independently, um, con- just not concurrently. <laughs> I mean, not simultaneously. Yes. So, and when you talk about fasting, is that like, um, like is it intermittent fasting? Like people just eating one meal a day kind of thing or is it no, no food? It's, or It's no food. So basically the wow. setup is you have uh, generally between three to four liters of water and electrolytes and it has to yeah. be really clean electrolytes. So basically it's, it's like rock salt. Um, yes. So you're trying to aim for your daily values, which is going to be sort of in that ballpark of about two and a half grams of sodium. Um, yes. We were using potassium chloride and again, like, you know, pharmaceutical grade um, potassium chloride. We don't want fillers. We don't want anything else like that. Yeah. Um, and some magnesium, again, the cleanest version was and as much as not, you know, it's not bioavailable. It's a really, you know, terrible form is magnesium oxide. But in the context of when we're trying to basically avoid having forms of these things, like, for example, potassium citrate you know, mm. is potassium and citrate. And citrate, of course, can be fed into the mitochondria reactions. So if we're feeding energy into the mitochondria reactions, then we're not getting the results that we want from the fast. So we have to be really, really careful that what we're consuming is not um, going to be supplying energy to the mitochondria and basically hampering our results. Yes. Now, 
the other thing with this was really, really interesting. So, you know, this, this was a really key safety point because mm. essentially um, what we're doing with the fast is removing all of these energy sources for the mitochondria. Yep. Yeah. Now, in this situation where we have now also not. Hello? Are you there? Are you there? No. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. I can hear yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go yeah. on. So technology, um, so yeah, so basically safety consideration, um, when we knock down that, um, that enzyme, that mm. means that there is no glutamine available to keep, you know, keep the cell sort of um, spinning or the mitochondria spinning in the event yes. that, uh, you know, that basically the mitochondria suddenly finds itself split in the middle or what we call fragmentation. So what's really interesting is when you're looking at the design of the mitochondria, the engine, the reactions, is yes. that there is a built-in speed limiter. So, you know, before we're talking about oxidative stress. Yeah. So basically there is an enzyme right in the quote unquote, the middle of the reactions, which is just yes. after where glutamate and glutamine feed into um, the, the cycle. Mm. And that enzyme, which is called alpha ketoglutarate dehydrogenase or AKGDH, um, mm. it responds to oxidative stress. So the more oxidative stress there is, the less mm. of that enzyme that is. And what that does is it essentially acts like a speed limiter. It stops um, the, the mitochondria from blowing up, if you like, from getting too hot. Yes. Now, <laughs> when that happens, there's this really interesting little trick where the mitochondria can do uh, a, some reactions outside and bridge and heal the, the cycle, at least half of the cycle. It's like putting your car in valet mode and limping home, limp home mode. So yeah. basically it's able to just kind of keep going. Now, the yes. thing is it relies on that enzyme, glutamate the hydrogenase or GDH, which is what gets knocked down completely by the green tea extract. So if we're in a situation wow. where suddenly the oxidative stress is high mm. and that enzyme is low, then you can basically end up blacking out and convulsing while your body goes in and out and in and out and in and out of, of basically a you know, somewhat near death state as wow. all of the cells are suddenly running out of energy. Um, and I wrote about this in the, in the, like in the third paper, because I saw this as being, you know, a bit of a concern because we're essentially the thing with, with biology is there are five, typically five backup pathways for every single pathway. And so when we're fasting, okay. we're removing all of these backup pathways and then with the, you know, the green tea extract, removing the, you know, the final backup pathway. So it's literally yes. there is, there's nothing left. It's, it's basically down to, you know, the cell is either going to live or the cell is going to die depending on whether it's infected. But that means yeah. that if we reach too much uh, oxidative stress, then basically that whole cell stops. The mitochondria stops. Yes. So there's no fuel left. All the fuel, all the fuel sources have been turned off. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this is, this is the thing. So with that, um, what we, what we need to actually have is a, if you like a parachute. So in the event that this situation um, reached a state where suddenly this, you know, the, this mitochondria is being shut down because of, you know, oxidative stress that suddenly come from perhaps somebody eating. So eating while we are, um, while we're in that fasted state with the green tea extract, yeah. is enough to then create oxidative stress and reach a point where that person could end up convulsing on the ground wow. and basically blacking in and out and blacking in and out up until the green tea extract um, has been metabolized from the system. And this could go on for hours. 
Wow. Uh, in fact, it's already been observed to happen, unfortunately, by a couple of people that self-experimented and then didn't follow the instructions. Oh, it's fine. It's just food, you know, and yeah. then ended up basically being stuck in this agon- you know, agonizing state for a couple oh of hours until the green tea extract ran off. Wow. So it's, yeah, so it's 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 very important um, that that one is is you know considered in the process. Now, funnily enough, the sacinic acid uh, is something that you're going to find in fruit vinegars like apple cider vinegar. It's also mm. available um, just as a as a direct product that you can buy online uh, as a lab region or you know basically as a supplement. It's a food additive, in fact. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's in wine, it's in vinegar, it's in all sorts of things. So. Basically, if somebody is performing, you know, decides that this sounds like a really great idea and they're going to go out and uh, they're going to do a green tea extract fast and do everything, yes. there are very specific instructions that I've written in the, um, in the third paper that basically explains how it all works and how to avoid uh, like a, a situation which is going to be very, very unpleasant or potentially dangerous. Like if somebody was driving, you know, driving a car and they say, oh, it's fine. You know, I finished my fast. I'm just going to go and eat, you know, my hamburger or whatever. And suddenly yeah. they find themselves blacking out like that. It, it could easily be fatal. So For sure. You know, Scary stuff. And can correct. people can people find all that information, the links to paper stuff on your website? Yeah, that's definitely on there. Um, we've what, actually what's... just started up very, very recently. Um, yeah. an online forum and it look it's very bare bones at the moment because it's probably a week old yes. uh, but you'll find that there's a growing community there's about 80 people there that are sort of starting to you know share their stories about how they've self-experimented with it uh, and you know the, the yeah it's it's growing it's a it's a work in progress at the moment um, what's that's, what's the website so that's bornfree.life the number three uh, no free as in F-R-W. oh born free yeah dot yeah. life so that dot was basically life. yeah it's okay. a spin-off the, the other work uh, that I was doing before was very much in health and fitness. Um, and that's, that's a different entity I've got called thinking muscle, thinkingmuscle.com. But okay, I mean, that focuses, yeah, takes, takes uh, people that are, you know, average general population and then yes. basically helps them become, you know, better, you know, aiming for superhuman. Well, wow. uh, there's such a, you know, a, a contrast between people that are needing a leg up to get back to quote unquote normal and people that are normal and, you know, want to, want to really perform um that yeah it was it was yeah enough that i i thought that separating them into two different um communities would make sense yeah exactly because i know even you know even for me like when i take reishi i'm thinking about how it's going to help me sleep and about the calming and but i'm not mm. thinking about all these incredible things that are happening on the cellular level as well yeah well, and it's, it's so interesting to hear that yeah no it's really interesting so i mean all the things that reishi do so one of those yeah. things, okay, it's, again, we were talking about GDH, and this is all going to keep coming back to GDH when you yes. have a look at the model and have a look at the papers. So yes. hormones, as we were saying before, they alter transcription factors. One of those big transcription factors that we talk yeah. about is GDH. So it turns out that um, the, the male hormone, so DHT, is directly responsible for increasing GDH. And it was one of the pathways that gets massively affected. So the hormonal balance that we found in people that are, um, infected with these viruses starts mm. altering significantly towards being highly androgenic um, and then basically insignificant amounts of or, you know, not sufficient amounts of estrogen, for example. Yeah, right. Now, and that's actually really important because essentially estrogen works on GABA-related pathways, which is kind of like the inhibitory pathway, and then yep. um, testosterone uh, metabolite, which is uh, DHT, it works on the glutamate uh, pathway on metabolism. So essentially, it's almost like the masculine energy is the fire. The feminine energy is the calming and healing 
um, pathway. And it's, it's really okay. interesting how that plays philosophically. So yeah. things like growth hormone, for example, growth hormone is actually downstream of GABA. Uh, and, and things that are basically involved in anti-inflammatory behavior, healing behavior, everything around that is largely based around estrogen, whereas everything yes. that's all about anabolism and growth is all based around glutamate metabolism and uh, essentially the, the androgens. Now, wow. Yeah. Now, now so the, the, the ganoderic acid, the triterpenes in reishi, so ganoderic acid A, for example, acts mm -hmm. as an inhibitor um, if you like, of the enzyme that converts testosterone into DHT. So it reduces or normalizes um, the, the male androgens to a level where suddenly those cells, for example, are allowed to die or how our sleep, you know, we work, we don't have as much glutamate there. So we're able to actually sleep and actually get quality sleep because we're not being overdriven. Wow. So, so that's actually how it works to make, that's how it makes you feel more calm yes. when, you're, when you're having the reishi. Correct. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, so it's like you, you've heard of you know things like for hair loss where there's five alpha reductase inhibitors. Like there's some really mm, unfriendly uh, spoken about ones like dutasteride and finasteride, and they yes. basically will inhibit uh, five alpha reductase. So five alpha reductase is the enzyme that converts testosterone to DHT. So they yes. they'll basically do it in a way um, that is very potent, very powerful, but uh, they can last for a very long time and is associated with, you know, a number of different situations like post-finasteride syndrome and various, you know, sort of unpleasant circumstances, which to be fair, I think is actually probably more tied up with the model um, and the underlying, you know, infection than the actual drugs, but essentially it's something that has been a concern. Whereas on, you know, reishi and even the green tea extract, the green tea extract is also a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. So it reduces GDH the same way. Um, wow. And also more directly by being... Um, uh, like an antagonist there at the at the androgen receptor, so yes. it's it's really interesting. So basically, it's it's the whole fire and ice, the masculine, the feminine, and it's just just trying to get everything to balance to be normal, so that the, the you know the metabolism is is down normal. So yeah, and that's that's a really really interesting way to think about it as well. Is that the ratio is helping to kind of balance that out again? Mm. Like that's yeah, that's it's, and it, it makes a lot of sense because we should be you know, we should be able to just fall asleep. But a lot of times we can't because of whatever else is going on in our lives because of the, the stress or because well, of what we're eating or... This is just it. So the pathways involved... Okay, so it's it's really, really interesting. So things like, for example, melatonin. So melatonin, yet another hormone we're talking about. So melatonin um, is something at the end of our friend today. Yeah, I don't, know what, I don't know what's going on. But yeah, so you're saying the pathways involved... Yeah, so sleep basically involves a number of things. So we've got the inhibitory, uh, the inhibitory um, uh, aspects there from GABA, but there is this other, um, this other hormone called melatonin. And melatonin, I think, has been underappreciated. So our body, in response to a dark environment, normally yes. starts producing melatonin. And melatonin yep. is really interesting because it triggers cells to basically run a cleanup operation each night to go through and clear out all these metabolites. Wow. And it causes us to get sleepy. It causes us to basically be able to reset and recharge each night. So basically clearing out the metabolites, resetting so that we, you know, kick off the next day, ready to go again. Now, yep. the problem is, is that um, the pathway that's involved to create melatonin is also dependent on both uh, N-acetyl serotonin, which is also dependent then on acetyl COA. So as we get older, you know, there's a common thing where basically, oh, I have trouble sleeping. 
Yes. Because the acetyl-CoA is low, so therefore the pathway that's involved to create melatonin is also impaired. So wow. basically it becomes this, this negative sort of feedback loop, this spiral where we can't get to sleep because we can't produce, you know, we can't produce melatonin and our metabolism is now more favored towards glutamate than it is GABA. So it gets, yeah, it actually turns into quite a nasty little, you know, long cycle towards an eventual demise. But yeah, certainly yes. the, the lack of sleep is, is a symptom of both the melatonin um, pathway impairments and uh, the GABA issues. And it gets a little bit more complicated beyond that too, because we have cortisol, we have histamine, yep. and we have these other things that are involved in um, basically being awake. So before when we were talking about gluconeogenesis, for example, like where we're liberating energy from um, existing cells, so proteins yes. to create glucose. So that is actually downstream of our um, things like noadrenaline or noepinephrine um, triggering. So basically our adrenaline triggers um, the, the beta oxidation, for example, of, uh, for example, fatty acids, of course, but yes. also connected up with that is um, cortisol. Yeah. So cortisol is also then involved in the immune response or dampening an immune response. So if our diets are you know, suboptimal, if we're not getting enough protein, uh, or if, for example, our acetyl-CoA is low, yes. so that basically we're not getting energy from fatty acids, then the way that the body responds to that is to increase the adrenaline output. Now, at this point, so epinephrine, no epinephrine, at this point, mm -hmm. suddenly we're flooded with all of these, you know, these um, excitatory, if you like, signaling, you know, you must be awake. You suddenly got like a, you know, a flood of adrenaline and yes. cortisol keeping you wide awake because that's yes. the way that your body is trying to get energy to keep these cells alive. Wow. So you're getting hammered on, uh, you know, potentially five different pathways at once. And that's, yeah. that's the nature of biology. So every time I look for, you know, if, if there's one particular pathway that is altered, that is somehow, um, you know, low, high, whatever, like it's, it's you know, dysfunctional, yes. then I look for five different inputs to that pathway. So what five things went wrong for this one pathway to be affected? You know, that's mm. very, very different from, you know, cause and effect. Oh, I'm just going to fix this one pathway by applying one drug. No, yes. I'm going to look at, you know, why did this pathway go wrong by finding the five pathways that were affected and then ask the question of how did those five pathways get affected? Just like you would with um, an IT system, with an Correct. IT system crashes. And this is the very, like, this is the fun thing. So yeah. in IT, you would never leave behind Band-Aids. So basically, if you found a pathway that was broken, Yes. You know, sure. You can say, oh, you know what, I could just like add a little bit of code here and yeah. that patch is going to keep this going. Yeah. And yeah, the trouble is, is that six months from now or whatever it's going to be, that code alteration that you've applied, somebody else doesn't know about or some other, you know, software alteration happens. Yes. Suddenly everything crashes and somebody, you know, the whole system's offline for days while we try and figure out what happens. Why is this system different from the other, you know, sort of 10,000 computers that got upgraded or whatever? And yes. it comes down to some patch that someone left behind, some alteration that wasn't documented, people didn't know about. And it's just, it's just not done. So you would yes. never do that. If you can't find the root cause and fix the root cause, then you'd wipe out the machine, you'd reinstall it, you'd get everything back to scratch. And of course, with biology and, you know, sort of humans, that's just not a, you know, it's just not done. It's not the way we look at it. No, yeah. we don't. We, we get a yeah. new prescription for another drug and we patch yes. this. And then when that creates side effects, we get another drug to patch the side effects. Yes. And when that becomes a problem, we get another drug to patch those yes. side effects. And if yeah. you're really lucky, you get a cycle of three different drugs that give you some kind of balance. So you yes. reach that homeostasis by three different drugs. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah.
it's, 100%. it's not an ideal situation. <laughs> no, no, it's, um, yeah. And it's been really interesting listening about uh, hearing your research and all the different things you found. And, and it's just blown my mind to think about, you know, all those things, you know, like herpes, cancer and chronic fatigue that I've always thought of, you know, have no kind of correlation whatsoever to think, you know, that on a cellular level, there's these patterns going on. Well, and, this, um, is, yeah. this is the interesting thing. And look, it's, it's a huge claim, um, mm. but you'll see basically by the, the literature that I've cited, this signature yes. of these metabolic alterations, mm. once you see the pattern and once you understand what's going on, you realize that there's something like 40 diseases that are associated with these viruses. It's not just chronic fatigue. Wow. It's not just, you know, it's, it's not, there is like almost everything. Like the trial that we're looking at running at the moment, it's going to come down to how it ends up being funded as yeah. to, you know, how that works. But, you know, the idea is that we're going to look to have, you know, potentially 40 odd um, cohorts of 10 to 20 participants for yes. each of the diseases that we're going to be testing this against. Wow. So it's, you know, it's everything. When you start looking at the autism spectrum disorders, you'll see that it fits the model. You start looking at, you know, basically um, Alzheimer's. You start looking at things like the, the beta amyloid plaques. And you, yeah. the, the literature is basically showing that they have antiviral properties and they react to the herpes viruses. So they're there trying to kill these infected cells. But of course, the, the plaques are also um, blocking our ability to access memories and things like that. So, the, you know, again, it's the immune system. It doesn't care about our mental health. It all yes. trying to do is, you know, keep life rolling. It's incredible. Um, and then schizophrenia. So, and schizophrenia and bipolar. So bipolar was really interesting too. Uh -huh. So in the model, basically everything comes back to uh, ammonia. So basically this, this high GDH creates uh, very, very large amounts of ammonia, which then has to get metabolized into urea, gets metabolized into, it can be recycled. Like the cell always prefers to recycle metabolites. Um, yes. It doesn't waste anything. It's amazing. But in this situation, it becomes, you know, toxic to the point where it has to start disposing of things. Now, in the process of disposing them, uh, it uses, it wastes metabolites to get rid of it. Now, the problem is, of course, is that some of those metabolites, one of them, the key one, is that acetyl-CoA. Mm. So the whole reason that we're talking about why is, you know, these viruses running out of acetyl-CoA, these, these infected cells, it's literally because they're being excreted out of the cell in the process of getting rid of the ammonia, the nitrogen waste. Wow. So, yeah. So this is... Um, yeah, so this is this is really interesting. So the the funny thing is, if you then look at how it recovers, so the things that are going into that nitrogen waste disposal also includes the pathways that are involved in producing um, thyroid hormones, in, in in producing dopamine. So literally, the precursors for dopamine are being lost in the process of um, yeah getting rid of this nitrogen waste. So if you wow. look at bipolar disorder. Um, you have periods where you can't produce dopamine. So, of course, all the receptors get highly sensitive and you know, we're reaching the depressed stage. And then suddenly, yes. you know, the ammonia load is, you know, the backlog has been dealt with. Things have calmed down and suddenly we can produce dopamine again. And you have all of these highly, highly sensitive, like sensitive receptors. Suddenly they get flooded with normal dopamine. You suddenly have a manic phase. Wow. So <laughs> it's, it's cyclical. You can, you can basically <laughs> plot the whole thing out. Um, schizophrenia, much the same way, but then you've also got, you know, these other things like the, we've got oxalates. So again, yeah. with the mitochondria being, uh, impaired, like the, the metabolism being uh, impaired again, with acetyl COA being low, the body has all these different scavenging pathways that it can try and recreate acetyl COA. So it can steal it from, for example, tyrosine and tryptophan. So we talked about, um, uh, melatonin before. So tryptophan, yes. which then becomes serotonin and acetyl serotonin and then, um, melatonin. So tryptophan yes. can get slurped up to make acetyl-CoA. 
Um, tyrosine, likewise, can get you know slurped up. All of our branched-chain amino acids, so leucine, isoleucine, valine, all of those mm -hmm. things basically get highly metabolized and just drained to make acetyl-CoA. Um, and so for this reason, we suddenly start having all these other issues. But there's also, um, we're talking about oxalates. Mm -hmm. So one of the other ways that it can produce um, acetyl-CoA is to hydrolyze oxaloacetate into oxalates and acetate. And then the acetate can be uh, connected to uh, COA and then you can make uh, acetyl-CoA. But then that leaves behind oxalates. So basically, mm -hmm. you end up with um, just these deposits ending up in tissues and it's just terrible. Like you, you have people out there that have just got you know, this, this horrible abundance of oxalates through their body. Uh, yes. And it shows up in scans and things like that. And it's painful. It's, it's basically like arthritis, but you're not seeing crystals of urea. It's not like your rheumatoid arthritis or the osteoarthritis. It's essentially these oxalates that are left in tissues where they shouldn't be. So that's, wow. that's part of that. Um, but then they also feature in uh, the brain in schizophrenia is actually, and sorry, and also in autism you'll see the oxalates there. Um, and then on top of that, there's other pathways affected as well. So you've got like sphingolipids and sphingosphene uh, one phosphate, for example, is one that's frequently you know, mentioned. So that one yes. also gets broken uh, in, in the metabolism. So like it, it all maps back to this one central thing, this one, ultimately one enzyme, and then yes. ultimately the viral programming just slurping up all the resources and it literally you're peeing them out. It goes out in your, in your urine. Wow. Wow. So, you know, you take someone who's older and, oh, I get up five times a night to pee. Yeah, yes. You do. <laughs> you sure do. And that'll make sense now. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's incredible. Well, it's, um, I'm looking forward to hearing how your um, clinical trials go. And it'd be great to chat with you again once, once that's all done and get yeah, some results. Yeah. Look forward to it. I mean, look, I've said a lot and we've shown a lot and I've basically connected a lot of dots. But look, at the yes. end of the day, it's science. You know, we've got to prove yeah. everything. Everything has to be done properly. So, yes. yeah, that's the next step. That's where we are. <laughs> Fantastic. And I mean, it, yeah, it's very encouraging what we've done so far. And yeah, I encourage people to go to those to your websites and have a look and do some research for themselves. Mm, no, thank you. Thanks for your time, Joshua. Cheers, Justin. I'll speak to you soon. Ciao. Cheers. Bye.